Well, maybe we can start with this. How many people here feel like you don't measure up? Anybody? Yeah? Oh, if you have, okay, with me. All right, sweet. Uh, how many people here can easily define Christianity as just another way to tell you that you don't measure up? Is that a little bit too nice for Sunday? Yeah, some people are being honest. That's good. Sometimes that's how we view Christianity. Well, how many people like the feeling of not measuring up? I don't. No hands on that one. It's a shocker. I think this story is getting at something honest. Jesus sits us down here and he's honest with us. He's like, look, I'm going to be real with you. You're going to fall away. You're going to mess it up. You're going to mess it all up. You're not going to measure up. You're just not. Like, that's the honest truth. Jesus is honest with these people, with the disciples, and he's honest with us. He says, but if you surrender, if you let me lead you, then you don't have to stay in that messed up state. You can actually like move towards something else. And, and Jesus isn't saying like, you should figure out how to do this on your own. He's not saying you'd be more passionate about it to figure out how to do your own. He says, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm going to raise you up, which is amazing. That's what we get in the first kind of section here. I think actually this whole story really teases out what Jesus says in verses 27 and 28, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but really, like, if, if we all recognize that we mess up and we don't like the feeling of not measuring up, why would we stay stuck there? But yet we choose to do that often, don't we? We, can, um, we could stay stuck there if we want, or we could understand, okay, yeah, we don't have it all together. And all that energy that I have and trying to prove to others that I have it all together, that's actually like a waste. We don't have to put the energy there. And, and we can hear from Jesus saying like, I've got you. And uh, I'm gathering all sorts of other people who fail just like you in all kinds of possible ways. And I'm going to teach you how you can work together and live for something better in your lives. So we all mess up, but Jesus doesn't want us to stay messed up. Oh, I lost my clicker. Sorry. hope this isn't going to make something. Ooh, I can walk around and talk. This is amazing. This is the first time, by the way, uh, using this. Yeah, I can just do some laps. I'll be downstairs. Um, <laughs> So, um, so Jesus doesn't want us to stay messed up, okay? So we all fall, but Jesus is the one who raises us up. And those first two verses here, Mark um, uh, 14, chapter 14, verses 27, 28 says this. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I think this whole story, this whole message is teasing out what those words mean. Those are words from Zechariah, which are like, thousands of years before Jesus even came. And he's quoting this. He's saying, you're going to fall. I'm going to raise you up. And also I'm going to lead you in my rebellion. And we'll get to that at the end. So we'll fall, but Jesus, Jesus raises us up and leads us into his rebellion. So let's look, first look at that first section that we are going to fall. Because Jesus tells us lots of different ways. And the story tells us lots of different ways that we're going to fall. So here are some ways that we're going to fall. One, we're going to be scattered. So when Jesus dies, the disciples will literally be scattered. Like they will be running around and like afraid. Some will go back to uh, being fishermen. Some will be hiding out because they're afraid, oh, if they did that to Jesus, maybe they're, they're gonna do that to us. Uh, they're trying to survive in this kind of world of crazy persecution. And it's easy, I think, when you're scattered, on, when you're on your own, to lead that being scattered to deserting. Like Jesus is saying, you're going to be scattered, but don't desert me. Like it, it, I think when we're in our scattered states, it's really easy to stay that way. And if, we're st- if we stay that way for a long time, we end up deserting Jesus. Jesus doesn't want this. Jesus also tells Peter he's going to deny him. And Peter, of course, being the overconfident type A male that he is, says, no, Jesus, you are clearly wrong. You do not know me. I'm the strong one. All these other guys, they're the weak ones. I'm not going to do that. Now, in Peter's complete experience of Jesus, Jesus has never, ever been wrong ever about anything. But Peter is so confident. He's like, 
yeah, no, I'm the exception. Like Jesus, you know, maybe you have these other guys figured out. I am the strong one. I will never do that. I will, I will never, never do that. And, and all the other disciples are like, yeah, we'll never do that either. And Jesus is just, he doesn't even bother arguing with them. He just stays silent. It's like, well, we'll see what happens. So Jesus, uh, Peter denies his denial. The others do the same and Jesus stays silent. So what happens? Well, he's betrayed, he's arrested. Uh, Peter follows along. Maybe he's, some, maybe he's a bit more brave than the other guys. He just saw like, I mean, you have the weird kind of story here of some guy who ends up fleeing naked. Like what in the world's going on there? I love that that kind of stuff is included in the Bible. Uh, but Peter um, is talking to a servant of the high priest. Now, the high priest is the one who just arrested Jesus he, and is, the, is in charge of like this kind of mock trial and is beating Jesus. And a servant of that high priest recognizes Peter because Peter's one of the 12 who are close to Jesus. And Peter, of course, denies knowing Jesus at all, eventually swearing at the woman, swearing at everyone around him. So when the pressure was on, Peter, the one who God chose to lead his church, now, this is, he is a strong character. He is a brave kind of guy. But the best possible chance we had as mere humans to put forth someone who will be brave in all kinds of circumstances, he completely wussed out. He didn't have it. He didn't measure up. It's easier to, de- to deny Jesus than to embrace suffering. Of course, we do that all the time. And like Peter, we choose the path of least resistance. I think it's easy for us to deny Jesus in subtle ways because very few people we know would be like, are you a follower of Jesus? Like, no, 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 because that means I'm gonna be flogged. Like, that's not really our experience. But we deny him in lots of other kinds of ways. When, um, when we might be afraid of telling people at work that we're Christians, like, oh, how am I even gonna, do I even want them to know? Because I might have to live a life. It's, it's almost like putting like some kind of, in America anyway, putting some kind of Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car and you drive like a horrible person. Like, well, they should just at least not put that bumper sticker on there. Um, and so that kind of way of like, oh, people at work, they're gonna know I'm a Christian. Like that means that might, you know, maybe my game has to be a bit higher. And so we don't want people to know kind of what we believe. Or we might be a bit awkward of how do I tell somebody? Now, here's the easiest way. If someone's like, what'd you do this weekend? You say you went to church. People get, what that means. Or he was like, oh, I went to church and then I hung out with my, um, with, you know, my church family or whatever. That's really all you need to say to begin with, to kind of signal to others, this is what I believe in. But we are kind of a little afraid of that. Also, another way we can be good at denying Jesus is not making the most of where we make mistakes. Because we deny Jesus in our mistakes very easily. It's easy to have the false idea that being that good Christian witness at work or at whatever with neighbors or whatever means not messing up but that's just not the gospel. The gospel didn't come to make good people. The gospel didn't come to make nice people. The gospel, I mean, hopefully it does make us a little bit better than we were before, but that's not what it's about at first. It's about a good God making a relationship with broken people. And if we're denying that brokenness, we're actually denying the power that God has had in our lives. If we're putting forth ourselves, well, actually we have it all together. What we're telling others is Christianity is a group of people who are nice and a group of people who have it all together. That's not what this is about. That's not what I wanna give my life to. And when you realize that you aren't being honest with a mistake or you didn't apologize for something, because sometimes that can lead us to covering up things or playing down things, um, apologize for that. Apologize for the lack of apology, as mad as that might be. But we should be more concerned, I think, about Jesus's mission than about protecting our own reputation, which is really what that is in the moment. Jesus's mission is speaking his words, living lives that are congruent with those words. And if we're presenting ourselves as not needing anything, why does Jesus have to exist for us? And this is completely countercultural to like middle-class ideals that we might have or aspirations. Ah, oh, actually having it all together, that's really what, where I wanna be. And that's just not what the gospel is about. 
So we're scattered and denial is another way we'll fall. Another way we're going to fall is sleep. So Jesus is at like the highest point of his anxiety. If I could describe his experience using that word, he is in what will be like the second most needy position he will ever experience. And he has some best buds. They live together. They've done amazing things together. More like Jesus has done amazing things and they all watch Jesus do these things. They just had the last supper. They experienced a Passover. They prayed. I mean, they were, uh, um, Jesus is teaching them about like the new heavens and earth. This must've been like a spiritual high kind of moment for the disciples. Like, wow, this, is, this feels like Jesus really is being the Messiah. And uh, Jesus is, um, then they, they sing a song and they head out to pray. And then Jesus tells them this in verse 34. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's over, he is overwhelmed so much he's like near death. That's a pretty high level of overwhelm. And then he says, what does he say in verse 34? He says, stay here and keep watch. That means pray. That's what keeping watch is about, it means pray. Jesus can't make it any more clear how important it is for them to pray. He says, my soul's overwhelmed to the point of death. What we need to do is pray, guys. And then they sleep. <coughs> in verse 38, he goes back again. And he says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. So it's not even like praying for Jesus. Not even praying for Jesus. He's about to go to the cross, about to bear the sins of everyone who's going to redeem on him. He's concerned. He, Jesus is about to be tortured and he's concerned about them. He comes back. I'm afraid you are going to fall into temptation. You need to pray. And then he comes back and they're sleeping again and they're all awkward and ashamed. And Mark says, they don't know what to say. Like, I don't have an excuse. I fell asleep three times. Verse 41, Jesus says, are you still sleeping and resting? Ah, well, that's it. Like it's done. Like there's no more time. It's over. You didn't have time to pray. It's done. The window has passed. The disciples have missed it. There isn't an infinite amount of time to pray. I think often that there is. Ah, there's something important. Like, oh, I'll, I'll like pray later. I'll find a time later to pray. I won't pray now. But what happens between now and that time later? Like, I don't know what's going to happen in that time. I need to pray now for whatever might happen later. The, um, the other day, uh, I started out the day in prayer, which is, yay, good for me. Um, and then later, I ran into someone who I kind of knew, uh, who I found out was coming on to the carol service, but I didn't really know them that well. And we had a really good kind of 15-minute chat um, outside the library as we were waiting um, for it to open. And I was immediately thankful that I took time to pray that morning because I needed God to go before me. Because in that moment, even in just a 15-minute chat, who knows what God can do? I didn't know I was going to have that kind of interaction at that time. And if I didn't pray beforehand, I would probably be more relying on my thoughts and my ideas and my words. And that's not what people need. People need Jesus. And they need Jesus to be working in those moments. Even in a 15-minute conversation, because who knows what God will do. But instead of praying, we sleep. Jesus keeps coming back to these disciples because he's concerned for them. He wants to check up on them. They are not getting the urgency for themselves or for Jesus. They're failing to join in with what Jesus is about because Jesus says their flesh is weak. So they might have a willing spirit. They might have really great ideas of what they could pray for sometime in the random future. Um, But the idea of actually doing the work, of actually praying, of execution, they're weak. They're not actually doing it. So God doesn't really care about your great motivations, your great ideas. He wants you to pray, regard, even if you have horrible ideas and horrible motivations, that's better than not doing it. And we don't know when a crisis is gonna hit. We can't tell. I mean, what are the kids gonna be like? What is Janet from HR gonna be like? Or whatever the thing might be. Janet. Prayer is the only way we can prepare for those things. 
I think really there are a few of us, myself included and the people who don't get it, a few of us who understand the urgency of prayer, really how powerful it is for us and for others. And how needy really we are without it. Like a life with prayer is weak. We're relying on ourselves. Like we know ourselves. We're not great. We might be good in some things, but we're not really what people need. It can't be, a life without prayer cannot be anything else but weak because we have to rely on ourselves. And if we aren't praying, we're actually choosing to cut ourselves off from power and life that we're given freely through Jesus. So the things that we care most about, have we prayed about? It doesn't feel like you've prayed about, if it's something that isn't like working out the way you want, does it feel like um, you've been using the words so much, you feel like you're wearing out the words, kind of like a, a trail that you walk down that loads of people have walked down like years and years and years. And now it's like really easy to walk down that road because the grass has been trod over for, I mean, have you ever had those kind of prayers? You feel like you're wearing out the words? Like, oh, I don't even know another way to say this. Oh, God, I want you to work here. I don't see you working. That could be for people we love who don't know Jesus. That could be things that we see in ourselves that just kind of keep on bubbling up. It can be all sorts of things. Are we engaged with the God of the universe or are we really kind of just checking off a list because that's what good Christians do? This is a bit of a downer, isn't it? It gets worse because not only do we get scattered, not only do we die, not only do we sleep, but we kill. I was just getting, it's getting bad. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, the, the, an act that should symbolize closeness and relationship and intimacy. Judas is using it to bring a war. <coughs> and a crowd comes with weapons to take Jesus away. It's like a wartime kind of mentality. And um, Peter, who's not named here in Mark, Mark was very nice to Peter here. Peter is the one who um, takes his sword out and cuts the ear off the servant and, and, and Jesus scolds him. Of course, Peter, you know, he's the strong one, right? Trying to maybe like prove to Jesus, no, I'm not gonna deny to you. I'm gonna cut some ears off while I'm at it. Lastly, the religious leaders, they're trying to find something, anything to put Jesus to death. And when Jesus confronts Peter's act of using his sword, the first verses in chapter 14 are fulfilled. When, when we read early on um, where Jesus says that uh, the disciples will be scattered, what we read in verse 50 is, then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone deserted Jesus and fled. Every single person. And you will fall because you will want to kill. There are all sorts of reasons that people are using weapons in this story and none of which are acceptable to Jesus. None of them. Jesus does not use brute force of power, doesn't use any kind of violent means, not, not even kind of violent words, and, and neither should his disciples. Now, we may not carry around swords with us, kind of frowned upon, I think, in this time. We all have our phones. And when someone wrongs us, probably what we're supposed to do, what we do is we're quick to tell someone about it as soon as possible. We won't bring it up with the person who offended us, of course, because that would lead to reconciliation. And that's not what we want to do. We want to destroy that person. And killing their reputation is about as good as it gets in this non-sword carrying kind of world. Like, oh, I can't slice their ear off, but I can like, you know, I can, you know, talk about them as much as I want. Now the swords may have left our sides and we may not have to deal with swords anymore, but the violence in our hearts is still a reality that's there. It's still something that has to be reckoned with. Thankfully, we're not slicing. Like that, that's great. That's not slice people. That's not like an upgrade. But that violence is still there. How are we dealing with that violence within us? So while we're busy being scattered, denying, sleeping, and even killing, what is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is faithful to the Father's mission, of which is raising up the very people who are scattered, who are denying, who are sleeping, and who are killing. So we might fall, but Jesus is the one who raises us up. 
Jesus is the one who raises us up. Before anyone in the story is scattered, denies, sleeps, kills, whatever the thing might be, Jesus has already said, you will fall. This is nothing new to Jesus. He knows what's going on. You're going to fall, but I'm gonna raise you up. So you might also have a, um, like a star or an asterisk in your Bible and for verse 28. And uh, because what Jesus is talking about there, I will go ahead of you into Galilee, is at the end of Mark, after Jesus has been put to death, after he's resurrected, the disciples and Peter, they're at the tomb. They're like, why is Jesus not here? They're still not getting it. They don't get the, like Jesus has said, I'm not gonna stay dead. But an angel there tells the disciples and Peter, he says, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you're going to see him as he told you. Jesus is busy doing stuff. He's not dead. He's already told you he's gonna be going ahead of you into Galilee. So Jesus already knows this is going to happen here before he's even like questioned by, by the high priest. And so Jesus isn't dead. He's out and about, he's busy. So how does a very alive and very not dead Jesus affect our lives now, affect our present? Because we know that it changes our future. We get the idea of uh, the new heavens and earth. And when we die, we, we, don't, we don't stay in the ground. We're not, we're not going to hell. We're gonna be with Jesus face to face. It's gonna be amazing. And he's creating this new world eventually that we're gonna be able to participate in in ways that I don't get or understand, but it sounds really great. We know that's in the future. We know in the past, like, oh, all of the things that I've done, I know through what Jesus has done, like that slate is clean. It doesn't matter what I've done in the past. Like Jesus has completely forgiven me because his blood is more than enough to cover it. So we know in the past, we know in the future, but what about like the present? How does it actually affect us now? In some ways, it's easier to get those things because they're abstract and they don't really affect us in the moment. I get the future. Yeah, I trust Jesus with the future. I don't trust Jesus with this thing that's gonna happen next week. Like we trust Jesus with our, like our life after death, but the idea of trusting him with that job interview or whatever the thing might be, our kids, that's really difficult because that's in the now and it requires us to trust Jesus now. So the question for us is that gap in the middle, how does the resurrected Jesus change who we are today when we fall? So we're just gonna go back through that list and have a look. So first, when we deny. So Peter denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Way to go, Peter. And the second, in Jesus' second biggest time of need, as Jesus is getting spat upon and mocked inside the, the high priest kind of area, Jude, uh, uh, Peter is outside denying Jesus. But does Jesus turn his back on him? Does he have like a rethink? Does Jesus shun him or scold him? No, he continues to work in Peter. And he goes from, Peter goes from this like brash, overconfident man to a humble leader of the first church. That's amazing. This guy who's cutting off ears, who's denying Jesus, is gonna lead a church? Like I have better credentials than that. I, I, I never cut off someone's ear, so put me in charge of that church. And when we deny him, and we all have those moments, right? We all have those moments when we deny him. Those little moments where we could have said something, where we should have said something, and maybe we didn't, or uh, you know, maybe that was like the Holy Spirit tugging at us, saying, oh, say that one little thing, or don't say that one little thing. Don't join in with that joke, or don't say this. And then sometimes we follow him, sometimes we don't. But then what we do, <clears throat> especially if we aren't following the Holy Spirit, is we get our overactive guilt engine out. I know you have one, I have one too. We go around back, we take the cover off, we fill it up with petrol and we start up like a lawnmower and that thing starts roaring, the thing starts going. And we turn that thing over and over and over and over in our heads. And we're thinking about that thing as the engine keeps going, that guilt machine just keeps going like over and over. I should have done this, I should have done this, I didn't do this, I didn't do this. Oh no, now I'm a horrible person. But Jesus has already forgiven you. He's already moved on. 
He's already somewhere. He doesn't deal with that guilt in the moment anymore. Like he's dealt with that guilt in the moment. So he says, okay, that didn't go so good. Let's try a little bit better next time. Here, here's maybe what you could do instead. And he takes us by the hand and he leads us into that next time. But we're not budging. We're not budging at that point because we got that overactive guilt engine like just kind of working. And uh, that's what the enemy loves because now instead of realizing that the risen Jesus has already forgiven us, he's already moved on. He's not found in that guilt engine. He like destroyed that guilt engine though we try and scrap the pieces back together to put it back together all the time. Yet we now instead of being present with Jesus, we're present with our guilt. Instead of with our eyes focused on Jesus, now we're focused on our guilt. And we hear that engine roaring. We can't even hear Jesus's voice because that engine is drowning him out. Jesus has us by the hand. He's trying to say, look, I've destroyed that guilt. Let go of that thing. Like you're not, but you're not having any of it. You're pulling on Jesus. Like, no, but don't you see this thing? Like, this is horrible. Jesus is like, yeah, I know. I put it to death. Like, you don't have to deal with that anymore. I know more than you do. It's done. It's done with. And that's how the resurrected Jesus changes our present when we deny him. Because he takes away the guilt in that moment that we have, that we all have, that we feel like we have to deal with and bear with and carry with us, but we don't. He takes away the guilt in the moment, the obsession with our actions in the moment, and he leads us to the next thing. And he also empowers us in the next moment so we can actually live the way we really want to. And what about when we sleep? Now, sleep is not only a uh, literal problem for us all, probably, if you're like me. It's also a metaphor of a, uh, of a, spiritual, of a lazy spiritual life. I think all of us have parts in our walk with Jesus where we're lazy. It's not like some of us are. Some of us, it's like the question is, where are we lazy? Because we all have those, those places. Maybe it's prayer, like in this story. <clears throat> Maybe it's getting to the word for yourself. Maybe it's not really connecting with others in the community. Like all these are necessary. And if we aren't practicing them regularly, as in more than just a couple hours we're here together, then you are sleepy. And that's okay, because we all have this, these sections where we need to grow in. But let's focus on prayer here, because that's what the story is about. And that's what's going on in the story. And maybe, like, quite possibly, prayer is actually the easiest thing to be lazy about, because it requires us to talk. And it's, it's more than just, it's easy to read, and just kind of let the words kind of wash over us, and maybe not really engage with it. But prayer is really difficult to not engage with, because you're speaking to a person. You speak to the person. And uh, prayer is good because it stops us from thinking of a God as a thing that gets me stuff and brings us to Jesus, who's the king, who I should be in awe of. And he's also the patient savior who keeps picking me up. This is someone who's worth talking to. I think, I know from my life, and maybe this is true for you, a lazy prayer life really means you don't believe God is worth someone talking to. If God is someone who is gonna heap guilt on you, if God is someone who is kind of powerful but not really powerful enough to change the things that really matter in your life, if God is someone who's present for others but not really present for you, why would you spend time talking to that kind of person? Like someone who's worth talking to is someone who's worth getting up in the morning. Like if I haven't seen Christina in like a week and I get home from something and, I'm, and immediately when I get home, instead of talking to her for like an hour, I go immediately to sleep. It's kind of like, do I really think Christina's someone worth talking to? Not in that moment. If Jesus isn't worth talking to, we're not going to. It'll, it'll be forced and it'll just kind of feel religious and it'll just be words and it won't really be prayer. But the real Jesus, the one who is now, who's resurrected, that has already raised us up with him, I mean, that's someone is worth taking time for. So if our prayer life is lame, let's pray about our prayer life even. If you're like, Jesus, I really would love to have like a more dynamic prayer life. I would love to feel like I'm speaking more to a person like, just tell Jesus that. Like, you don't have to work that up yourself. You're not meant to. The Holy Spirit through you will work. I mean, for all of us, we, we should ask Jesus, as he is in, in this story here, 
to help us to keep watch, to make us mo- help, help us to make most of these opportunities. And I guarantee your life will change if you spend more of it in prayer. I guarantee it 100%. There's not even a question. My life would change more if I did it more. Like it would just change who we are as a, as a people altogether even. So let's move from, uh, from denying and to sleeping uh, to talk about killing. Well, that escalated quickly, um, right into killing. Um, Jesus says, every murderous intention that you might have in your hearts, every possible thing that you could want to, even in like your worst possible moments where you're like, oh, I just want to, oh, want to a person, um, whoever that thing might be, whoever that child might be. <laughs> I never think about that about my son. Um, that proves not only that we fall, but that proves like death really should be on our heads. That, that's death that we deserve for ourselves. And even in that failure, Jesus says, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to raise you up. Whether we want to kill and when we're, we lie about Jesus, when, we, uh, when uh, he's beaten, when uh, we betray him, all the kind of things we could possibly do to our risen Lord who does nothing but love us, all those possible things, Jesus still raises us up because he raises up those who are his. Jesus didn't have a change of heart when he was being spit upon and made fun of. When Jesus was on the cross and the nail was literally going through his hand, he's like, Greg, ooh, I don't know. Is he worth it? Nah, scratch him off the list. That's just not how it works. Jesus never had a change of heart about any one of you. He's like, I love that person. I cannot wait for that person to know who I am. I cannot wait for that person to experience what life is really like because they get to know who I am, because they get to talk to me every day. That's how excited Jesus is about knowing you. And that's why he went through the most horrible thing possible he could ever think of, to win us to him. So if you're his, he will raise you up in every situation. If you trust him when you die, surely you can trust him with your life. So let's stop relying on ourselves and let's look to Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he looks at us all and takes us all, a bunch of failures scattered about, and he gathers us together. He doesn't gather us so we can live the same kind of isolated, kind of broken little lives before. He gathers us because he wants us to know our brothers and sisters. He loves his family. There's no end to that kind of love. And Jesus wants us to experience a little bit of that. So we individually will fall, but the Lord gathers us up. And as a people, not as as separate people, but as a people together in his love. So if we go on by ourselves, if we face problems alone, we're just not doing it right. Jesus went through a resurrection to see a people work together, to have a family live together, to be on his mission together. Are we going to deny him of that? Are we going to deny ourselves of that? What an amazing way to live. Now, in all this, I hope you get the idea that um, really nothing can separate us from Jesus. Nothing can separate us from him. The reason nothing can separate us is because he's the most powerful being to exist. So what he says goes. What he wants to happen, happens. When Jesus says, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you, you better believe that's really going to happen. <coughs> I saw a video the other day. This is, I don't know how I get into these rabbit holes, but I saw a video the other day of how chains are made, which is actually kind of hypnotic and interesting. You think, that sounds really boring. I don't know how I got onto this topic. Um, but it, it was actually like kind of hypnotic. You have this, um, this machine here. So there's these pieces of wire that are like that big and they're really kind of thick pieces of wire. And this machine, if I could do this, Ah, so there's a piece of wire coming in. This machine has these little arms that move like one piece this way, one piece this way, and then it flips it, and then it kind of keeps, it just kind of keeps on making chain, like moving and moving. And there's like tons of force that are being exerted on these pieces of wire being formed around these things to be connected to each other. Now that by themselves, 
that would make something really strong. But making a chain is actually another process. And that is to being dipped in like thousand degrees Celsius kind of molten. I don't know what gets what it is they dip it in, but it's something that's really hot. And this intense heat actually changes the molecular structure of the chain itself to make it really, really strong. So it's more than just wrapping itself around each other. It's changing the, 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 the material itself as they're wrapped around each other. And I think this is exactly what it means to be part of his church. That when Jesus invites us to his family, he takes all these disparate pieces of wire, completely useless by themselves. What are they gonna do with the little pieces of wire? They don't do anything. And he fashions them around where he wants them to be. He connects them with the people that he wants to connect them with. And more than that, he also heats them up, not, not to make them uncomfortable, but he changes our molecular structure so that we can be bound together. This is what it looks like to be gathered by Jesus. We're bound to Jesus in this way, like changed in such a way that now we're completely different. But gathered for what? What is Jesus gathering us up for? For a church service? Well, maybe, but hopefully more than that more than just this, right? Jesus is creating something new, but this world isn't new yet. So until that new world comes, Jesus leads his family in his rebellion. And in Jesus's rebellion, he's not violent. In Jesus's rebellion, he doesn't come to kill. In fact, he doesn't like swords at all. Um, In Jesus's rebellion, he gets put to death. He doesn't put other people to death. And when Jesus says, not my will, but yours, we get that same spirit of surrender to the Father. We get to say, not my will, but yours. And that is a rebellion against everything else in this world. That's a rebellion against ourselves. It's left to ourselves to say, not your will, God, but mine. And we have to be changed from that. We're rebelling against this dark world of loneliness, of not being known and not knowing other people. We're rebelling against a life of giving up, of not being empowered by God, and therefore left as easy prey for multinational companies with multi-billion dollar marketing campaigns telling you what the good life is about, telling you what you should buy, telling you what you should desire. We're rebelling against the middle-class ideal where, where comfort and niceness are the best possible options we could live for. What, what a small life that must be. Where risk for the gospel is a far thought from us. And in this rebellion, we don't stay silent. Jesus raises us up and we won't deny. We'll speak to others. We won't sleep. We'll speak to God. Because in this rebellion, our chant is this, not my will, but yours, God. Those are Jesus's words that he said on his lips. They get to be our words because of the Holy Spirit's working in us. So he spoke those words first. He lived those words first. And because of that, he empowers us to do the same. So how are we using our free time in this way? With people in Redeemer, with people who aren't believers yet, we want to come to faith. You know, are, are, we, are, we using our, are we saying, not my will, but yours, God? Or are we saying, uh, not your will, God? But mine, because didn't you know the crown just came out and I really want to binge watch the crown. Um, yeah, you can invite some people over, watch the crown together. Or it might be watching a historical period drama for yourself. You might be like, not my will, but yours, God. I'm not sure where you are on that. Or what about like raising our kids? Are we going to raise them by sheer brute force of love? I mean, that is okay. But we really, we have to pray. And not just for like me praying for Colin, but like Colin needs everyone's, you guys know Colin. Colin needs everyone's prayers right? I, I need you to pray for Colin. The Evans need you to pray for Iris and Saint. Like we need, like our kids should be like, we should be praying for our kids all the time. Not my will, but yours, God. How are more people going to be in these seats? If you haven't noticed by now, nobody in Trollton is going to care that we set up a new venue for worship service. Like no one's going to, no one who doesn't know Jesus yet is going to be like, wow, that's cool. I should come along. I just, it doesn't work like that. It just means we need to continue on Jesus's mission of telling people about who Jesus is and showing with our lives why that matters. 
in a crisis, before a crisis, in the aftermath of a crisis. Not my will, not my will, not my will, but yours, God. Now this rebellion has an end where one day our leader, Jesus, the risen king, will come back in power and glory. As he tells those who are beating him and lying about him during this kind of mock trial situation. One day everything sad will come untrue. Everything broken in your lives will be set right. Everything will be restored in one way or another. And more than us as individual, individuals, it's actually an entire world that, that uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working and, and, and that we get to look forward to. And Jesus goes ahead of us. Because when we read, I will strike the shepherd, that very kind of going back to that first verse in verse 27, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. That's God the Father as I. God the Father is striking God the Son, the shepherd. The Father and the Son do this because that means the sheep don't get struck. They might get scattered, but they will be gathered up again. See, all sins come with a weight. Someone has to hold them. Jesus saw us kind of bent over trying to hold that weight ourselves, and he relieved us of that, allowed us to walk upright as humans ought to. Now, if I'm driving and I run over like a part of your fence, someone has to pay for that fence to go back up. Well, who pays? You can completely forgive me. I completely, you know, ask for your forgiveness and everything. But at the end of the day, someone has to pay for that fence to go back up. It will cost money. Who's going to pay? The resident, the driver, the council? Not the council. That's not going to work. Maybe between you and me, we're okay, but someone still has to pay. Our weighty sins had to be paid one way or another. Jesus went ahead of us and he took it all upon himself. So on the cross, Jesus died. He died for the deniers. He died for the betrayers. He died for the liars. For all of us who fall asleep instead of follow, instead of, um, follow through with spiritual disciplines. He died and he was broken for it. And for all these people who would rather uh, be bent on killing, that would rather be bent on denying and rather be bent on living for themselves, saying, not my will, or not, not your will, God, but mine. He also bled for them. And of course, when I say these people, I mean us. This is what Jesus did for us. And he told us, to eat and drink often so that we would remember the lengths that Jesus went to us. We'd remember we will fall. We will remember that Jesus is the one who raises us up. And as we come up to this table, what we get to do is we get to honestly bring ourselves to this table. So like, yeah, I don't have it all together. God, please forgive me. And what Jesus does is he honestly brings himself as well. He's like, yeah, you don't have it all together. I'm gonna raise you up. I'm gonna continue to raise you up. There's nothing you can do to make me change my mind. And so we no longer have to be racked by guilt. We can be known by love. And so if Jesus has raised you up, this table is for you. You don't have to be a member of Redeemer. What we do is you grab a little piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine as we sing songs together. Um, if you're listening to this and haven't really bought into this yet, into this idea of Jesus raising us up, like this isn't for you, but think about maybe some of these things as we sing. If you wanna get unstuck from that feeling of not being good enough, uh, join this rebellion that was, and be raised by Jesus. There's really nothing to stop us, whether this is your first step or your hundredth step. Know that we all fall, but the resurrected Jesus is the one who raises us and leads us in his rebellion. Let me pray.